Will you pray with me, please? Our God of grace, as we um, enter into this space from different kinds of journeys, different places, different stories that you've been writing in our lives, um, we now pause and we're, we're opening ourselves up. Not so much for human words or teachings or thoughts, but for your words. Um, we'd love to meet you in a way that is gracious, that um, brings healing and love to our hearts, which are often coming with brokenness. And so whether we sit here feeling that brokenness or whether we sit here feeling sort of a joy and maybe a healing or whether we sit here somewhat numb and not sure what we're feeling, would you speak to us either way? And as we sit here, maybe some of us come with lots of doubt and maybe others come with, um, we sit here with belief, uh, a sense of certainty. Some of us come with grief and others come with a sense that prayers have been answered. And we sit here in this room with one thing in common, that we're more of a mess than we care to admit. And your story in Scripture, we often call it the gospel. The gospel tells us that we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined. A mess and yet loved. Beloved messes. And the love that you have for us shines through and brings healing and wins out in the end amidst all the brokenness and mess. Help us to believe that and also to hear that this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're, we're, we actually um, had a couple of glimpses of the Gospel of Luke starting with Christmas and what we didn't in any of, any of that, you know, as today we're sort of officially beginning this series on the Gospel of Luke, but we haven't yet peeked at, and even the reading from Luke that was up on the screen um, that Judy read for us didn't include this, the very first words that the writer Luke says when he lays this out. He actually has this sort of personal introduction that's a, a bit rare, um, and certainly rare for the Gospels. He's the only one who does something quite like this. Let's, I'll just read these four verses. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent, Excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So as Luke does that, um, let me just read something that's in your worship guide, a quote by the scholar uh, N.T. Wright. He says, here, Luke is saying, is something solid, something you can trust. Writers in the first century Mediterranean world quite often wrote opening sentences like this. Readers would know they were beginning a serious, well-researched piece of work. This wasn't a fly-by-night or casual account. It would hold its head up in the world at large. And since Luke, like all other early Christians, believed that the things that had actually happened 
what we would call the historical facts, had changed the course of the world, it was vital that they be presented as clearly and unambiguously as possible. Luke thus constructs a grand doorway into his gospel. He invites us to come in and make ourselves at home. Here we find security, a solid basis for lasting faith. And so today it's as if we're passing through this archway, this impressive entryway into this story. And it's in the archway saying, welcome, come on in. And we'll spend all of January and February here in Luke. And as I mentioned, there's the reading plan that you can take home and then the class on Sunday mornings. And our sermons um, will flow through these texts, a variety of them throughout the gospel to try to get a full picture of what's going on in the gospel of Luke. And we're starting with the baptism story today. One of the basic reasons why that happens today, why we're talking about Jesus' baptism today, is because actually throughout the world, today is considered baptism of our Lord Sunday. It's kind of a holiday on the calendar. It's a special day that Christians observe. And so all around the world today, people are looking at this passage. We included also one of the other passages that the church is using today from Isaiah um, that connects in some thematic ways. And so as we look at the baptism of Jesus, what it is, is it's ripe for us this morning. And Luke knew this, that the story of Jesus' baptism is ripe with things for us to learn about Jesus, but also to learn about our own baptism. For Luke, um, this is the first glimpse of the adult Jesus. And it's sort of like an inauguration of his public ministry as he gets baptized. Think about how public figures launch their, you know, their tenure, their term, their reign, their administration. It varies. But if we think about how things get initiated, how things get inaugurated, and what kinds of traditions and things are out there, we sometimes call call it like a coronation ceremony or an enthronement, um, as one of the readings up on the screen already mentioned that word. And then, um, you know, we got this word inauguration. We've got initiations into adulthood. We've got lots of things that we can kind of connect what's happening here. We can connect it to things we know. Usually these, these kinds of moments require and have a lot of pomp, a lot of ceremony, a lot of fanfare, crowds, adulation, And um, that's certainly the case as you think through certain examples. There's this tribe in Southeast Asia that that has this veneration of one of the scariest and most powerful creatures around them, and it's the crocodile. And so part of their coming-of-age tradition and initiation for young men is this ceremony um, that relates to this beast that they're venerating, the crocodile. And it's actually quite painful for the young initiates These men coming into adulthood get these scars all over them, but they're beautifully done, very painful, but beautifully done in in a pattern that kind of mimics and pays tribute to the crocodile's scaly skin. And then those marks are with them for the rest of their life. And in that ceremony, there's a lot of dancing, and there's costumes, and there's masks, and the whole community makes a huge deal out of all of these traditions around this initiation of these young men. 
So maybe we think of something like that as Jesus is initiating into his public ministry and, and these things are happening in his baptism. There's, there's other things, of course. Like if you're, you know, if you, I don't know if you watched the show The Crown and you got into the British monarchy at all, but I looked up a little bit about all the little pieces involved in the coronation ceremony of a new king or a queen. So, you know, maybe Prince Charles someday in our lifetime will um, take over the throne and this kind of ceremony will happen. So it happens at Westminster Abbey. The Archbishop of Canterbury gets involved and he walks up and he goes from east to the west to the uh, south and the north of the building asking if those present are willing to pay homage to their new ruler. Once they, the attendees respond affirmatively, the Archbishop administers the coronation oath and the Bible is presented. Um, then the actual crowning can take place. The archbishop eventually anoints the king or the queen with oil on their hands, their breasts, their head, concluding with a special blessing. Then there's spurs and the sword of state. I don't even really know what these things are. And then there's the sovereign's orb, which is immediately returned to the altar. Then there's the scepter with the dove, and there's the scepter with the cross. And once this is all done, then the archbishop of Canterbury places the crown of St. Edward on the monarch's head. Um, okay, so then afterwards, it moves on to more pomp and ritual. And of course, there's crowds everywhere as all of this is happening. The new ruler is seated on the throne and receives homage from various members of the British royalty and nobility. Holy communion is given to the sovereign, who then enters St. Edward's Chapel as the Te Deum is sung. And then when there's a switching of the crowns that happen and, they, and then the sovereign walks out still with the scepter and the cross and then the song, God Save the King or Queen, is sung as they come out and it goes on from there. Lots of stuff going on with the initiation of a British monarch. And we know like every year, every year, not year, but every time there's a new president, a new term of a president, you might have on the screen during the day the inauguration ceremony. You see all the crowds. You see all the, the parts of that ceremony, that have traditions that have built over the years. And, of course, there's inauguration address. There's a speech. And I learned something as I looked at you know, how presidents have used that moment to inaugurate their, um, their reign, their reign, president, you know, their term. So, so I, uh, I was looking into that a little bit. And I found that there was um, the shortest speech ever was um, George Washington's second inaugural address. And it had, depending on which website you look at, it's 133 words or 135 words. I even thought about reading it to you, but it was so boring. I mean, it's really short, but it's equally boring. And I thought, what would be the point of reading this? Then I looked at what's the longest speech. I got curious. And I, I realized that the ninth president of the United States gave a, um, gave a one hour and 45 minute address. It, it was eight, over 8,000 words. It was the longest one. It was cold and snowing. He wasn't wearing a hat or a coat. He developed pneumonia and died within a month. True story. I don't remember, I, I don't know if I wrote down the name. So, okay, Harrison. Some of you probably knew that story. That was brand new to me. I did not know that story. So as Jesus makes his public entrance into ministry, it's a little bit like that um, George Washington speech. It's, it's very understated, this situation with the baptism. Luke has just 
laid out in the first two chapters. And if you were at the Sunday school back there this morning, you, you got to dig into these verses. In the first two chapters, Luke has laid out the drama and gone to great lengths to show you angels showing up to just about everybody in the story, it seems, songs happening, people breaking out in speeches, people breaking out in quoting scripture, people, you know, uh, this guy Simeon holding up the baby and publicly recognizing the baby Jesus. You see all of this drama. It's very dramatic in the first two chapters. And there's astonishing signs as well. And then the author Luke just casually and briefly, with the sh- it's like the least possible words he could use, he describes the baptism of Jesus, the actual adult coming of age, coming into his ministry. There's no drama. There's no fanfare. The verses are packed with some intense things, but it's very short, and it's not publicly recognized. It seems almost as if Luke, if Luke hadn't told us, no one would have even seen that it happened. That's kind of almost the way Luke writes it. Like You, you could almost just miss it if you don't pay close enough attention. And that is a little bit puzzling, that juxtaposition between the first two chapters and then suddenly the baptism of Jesus so understated. And by, by the end of the Gospel of Luke, if you're reading it carefully and personally, you'll come to the end, and Luke wants us to come to the end, believing great things about Jesus, believing that he indeed is, is more of a king than the greatest kings of this world. And not only that he's a king, but that he's... Um, and not that he's a, just a teacher who teaches nice things and a leader who is kind of charismatic and can get people to follow him, but somebody who right away when his ministry is done, there's a sense that he is some kind of other king, you know, bigger than all other kings, and, and a savior, something people will talk about as a savior. And so we're to get that sense from this whole book. And so then again, we would expect the baptism the description of this inauguration of this figure who will be the greatest king ever, that, um, that his baptism, there'd be a, a bigger splash. Eh, you like that? Splash? Um, it's a groaner. It's okay. Um, but I felt like I, I, had to, I had to say that. I just, um, no, but... And, and then there's one other thing I want to point out about as you, if you're reading the first two chapters, the thing that happens just before he's baptized is John goes to prison, Herod. So, so Herod is a political figure. And, and so, you know, it's all grandiose, it's all dramatic, and it seems like he's going to be above, you know, Jesus is going to be a bigger deal than all the political figures. But then you get this hint right before Jesus' baptism that the, the Jesus movement is, is not being success. There's a hint that it won't be successful with the political people, that it won't get seen and recognized the way that we're almost being prepared to see and recognize it, and that John is going to prison, and he'll, he won't come out alive. And so this is our first, with, with John and then with Jesus, these are our first glimp- glimpses and our first hints of how Luke wants us to see that God's presence in our world. God's presence in our lives requires different kinds of eyes. Luke wants us already to begin to notice that if you are going to be 
an adherent of Jesus. You're going to learn not to look and not to have your attention where the fanfare is and where the crowds are and where the adulation and the songs being sung in our world today and where all the headlines are. An adherent of Jesus looks elsewhere to spot God's arrival in God's renewal, in God's ministry. This is something that we're seeing just through this baptism story. And, in fact, as we look closely at what is said during this baptism of Jesus, I would say that we learn to actually focus our eyes not just on Jesus' baptism, but on our own baptism. There was a... um, a line in a prayer that we just got to say together that talked about asking God to help us reclaim our baptism. I've never heard that phrase before until I saw it in that prayer. But let me explain what I think that means and what I think we're seeing here in this story. So Jesus, he for sure, as you see that um, he's baptized and as he's praying, the Spirit descends on him in bodily form like a dove, And then a voice from heaven comes down and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Or you, he says, you are my beloved son in you I am well pleased. So for sure what's happening is Jesus is being anointed as it were, as a king might be anointed in a ceremony. Jesus is being anointed to go and move in to the world and do healing and renewal kinds of things, wonderful teachings and bringing compassion and love to the world. He's being anointed and given the power of the Holy Spirit to go do these powerful things. And we'll get to look at a bunch of those over the next several weeks. So there's sort of the what. Jesus getting anointed to do what and to do some things. But there's also the not just the what, but the how that's going on in this tiny little story here of his baptism. And that's in, in verse 22. Um, the voice from heaven coming down. Um, there it is. And the voice came down from heaven, came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So don't miss this little phrase because this is kind of the, this is sort of the how. This is the nature that Jesus has as Jesus goes out to do what Jesus will do. What's going on in that phrase when it says, this is my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased, there's a lot of things going on, but for sure, scholars of the Bible aren't exactly sure. A lot of them try to figure out which exact phrasing or parts of this one little line from heaven that's coming down, where, what other scripture passages in the Old Testament are being alluded to here. And there's, there's a lot of like little debating, really minute stuff but all of them would agree that there's just a big sense of referencing the way God spoke about his people in the Old Testament. So, you know, depending on which text exactly you're going to point to, but the point is that this sounds like the way the God of the Old Testament talks about his people, Israel in the Old Testament. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And so Jesus is going to function, if we take that sense, Jesus is going to function as a representative. So as Jesus goes in the Spirit with power to do things, he's doing those things 
as a representative for us, for Israel, for God's people. He's kind of filling in. Where Israel failed, he will succeed. And forever upon God's people, forever upon them, there will be this approval of God. And that will happen because Jesus has kind of come in as a representative. Just as ancient Israel was protected um, as the deadly waters of the Red Sea like went, got out of the way and did not drown them, and they passed through the waters safely, in the same way, we're seeing that Jesus, for everyone who calls and, and seeks Jesus' Father through Jesus, all those who seek God in that way will find that they are spoken of and looked at the way Jesus is in this story. And that as we pass through the darkest and most difficult realities of death and trouble in this world, that God will hold us in the way that he's always longed to hold his people. And if, like, if you this morning happen to not be baptized yet, this is a way to understand why you would pursue baptism and what this means. It, in a simple way, just to look at this verse and say, well, God the Father is speaking to God the Son, and that voice coming to Jesus just to put this very simply, is a voice for you every day. And that's, what, that's how like our own baptism, if you're a Christian, it's sort of the initiation, the inauguration into the world of following Jesus with your life. Um, so, so baptism, as you enter into that world of God's love and God's grace and protection, is connected directly to Jesus' baptism. And so that voice speaking over Jesus is the voice spoken over all of us. And there's sort of a confidence that our baptism brings us. And as you think about the water of baptism is up here, there's a reason why we might want to be in the mindset of reclaiming and remembering our baptism because it's that solid link that says that voice, you, my child, you're beloved, in you I am well pleased. That's yours. That's your voice every morning. And so as silly and crazy, I just have to end with this quote, as silly and odd and quirky as it is, I just keep going back to it. I've probably quoted it in your presence if you've been here before. I've quoted it before, but Martin Luther, you know, the figure that, that we know of as someone who was part of the Reformation, a Bible student, a leader in the church, um, this was how he put that, is that the Christian wakes up every morning and looks at the mirror and says, I'm baptized. It's quirky. It's weird. But it, you kind of, it's been growing on me because it makes this exact point that you want to, every day, you want to be looking, if possible, at your true identity as Jesus came and stood in and that voice becomes yours. That's what it means to be a Christian. Let's pray. Our God of grace, as we seek to make sense of things far beyond our ability to conceive and to fully grasp. What is true is that you're doing something through Jesus, and you have been for a long time. And so, continue to draw us in to the way in which you have chosen to bring healing and love, not just to us and our hearts, our brokenness, but the world around us as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.